Hi everyone, thanks very much for joining us again today. Um, I'm Dr. Louisa and today of course we have our Prof. Dale Fisher with us to answer some of our burning questions for the week. Um, I just wanted to start off by going through some uh, news sections. So first thing is that we're all concerned about um, how the circuit breaker lift is going, even though we know that um, it doesn't really mean much and we might not be, see, be able to see anything after just a week. But um, if there's any news or if there's any um, commotion coming out of that? I think the circuit breaker in, in Singapore, um, you're exactly right, Louisa. It's, it's way too early to tell. Uh, we certainly know our, our numbers in the community were, were low when we started unlocking, but uh, I'd still question how aggressively Singapore government's going to move to to phase two. I think they're being remarkably and appropriately cautious. Um, and I think um, this is in contrast to the rest of the world that are uh, making a lot of mistakes in my view. And um, so what can we expect perhaps for the next few weeks? Will it be much the same? And we're just gonna watch for our cases and you know, uh, tune into what the uh, coveted R0 is? Well, I think what we're going to see in, in Singapore is, um, is pretty low levels. We'll be watching closely, particularly for unlinked cases. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the cases over the last week, you will have noticed, uh, are actually linked or, mm -hmm. or already in people in quarantine. So this is very reassuring because that would represent the end of a transmission mm -hmm. chain. But... Mm -hmm. uh, but what we might see is, is little clusters. Uh, we're not going to see widespread community transmission, but, but little clusters are possible. Um, there could be, well, schools are back. So maybe we know children don't, uh, don't usually get very affected by the disease, but, but we certainly had clusters in schools and school teachers just before the circuit breaker. So I think that's, that's, that's a place. Um, that we could look out for. Um, I, I think uh, the dormitories will continue on for for at least another month until uh, until that's uh, properly under control. But it's certainly better than it was, um, and there's good progress being made there. O overseas, um, I think some places have come out of lockdown prematurely, and but we all know why uh, people are suffering. People don't really understand if there's poor messaging, um, uh, particularly, uh, obviously, the, the marching of the streets in, in the US and indeed around the whole world um, will, will stir things up a bit. So the WHO recently released uh, a six-step plan of, the, of the, the needs before you unlock. And, and there are things um, that I've actually mentioned before, although mine was three steps, one, you need your transmission under control. Uh, two is you need your healthcare system back. So you need your beds back and your ventilators back. Uh, and the third one is, is you need all those public health measures in place, all the contact tracing, isolation, testing. Uh, and, and clearly there's many countries that don't have the transmission under control yet. Um, so it will be even, it'll be difficult to see a second wave actually in those countries because it's, it's, it's bad 
uh, at the start. So it could just look like continuation of mm. what's going on. But uh, places like uh, Australia and New Zealand are, are coming out of lockdown at the right time. They do have everything in place. Um, uh, still some controversy over mask wearing, but uh, I do worry if they're going too fast. Um, obviously, the marching of the street uh, is is one, but um, the restaurants, the nightclubs, the stories I'm, I'm hearing is that they're not really giving time to see if the sort of first phase is causing trouble yet. They're sort of mm. jumping to normalcy a little bit fast for my liking. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a different uh, controversy or rather confusion maybe with mask wearing here in Singapore, which I'd like to get to later. Um, but one thing also was mentioning, um, you know, this, this thing about testing and we tested some of our um, populations such as the preschool teachers as well as the nursing home uh, workers or health aides and assistants. Um, and, you know, we all know that Wuhan actually tested its entire 11 million population. So um, is there any value in doing that? Or, you know, what was the purpose of that? And do you think that, you know, we could do that in Singapore and what that would mean for us? So I'm certainly glad they did it. Um, I'm not sure this should be a practice around the whole world. It's tremendously resource mm -hmm. intensive. I think it cost them, uh, was it $150 million US dollars or something? Mm -hmm. It was very expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, but they did, they tested... Uh, I'm not sure if you were listening to the webinar on, on Thursday night. We do a, uh, a webinar. If you just go onto NUS website, you'll find our webinars and you can register for free. They're every Thursday. Uh, but we discussed this uh, two days ago. They've, uh, they rolled out uh, about 10 million uh, uh, people tested mm -hmm. uh, and they found 300 were, were positive and asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. And they did all these tests. They did pool testing, which is where you get, um, you swab five people and you test them all at the same time. This is a good way of, uh, of leveraging up. So you only had to do 10 million tests, if you like, uh, sorry, 2 million tests on 10,000 swabs. Um, so you can save some resources that way. Um, of course, if one of those is positive, you then have to go back to those five people and, and test them again. And it was a, it was obviously a huge exercise. They went door knocking uh, for everybody. They gave them a place to be at, a time to be at. Uh, it's reported that people only had to wait about fifteen minutes for their for their test, uh, and, and then it was done and they were off. Anyway, they found three hundred were positive. Uh, they were all asymptomatic, and remarkably, they tested um, the elevator buttons, um, their their door handles. Uh, all, all the high-touch areas around these 300 people, and actually they didn't find one positive uh, in the environment, which is quite reassuring. Uh, they, they went the extra step and said this proves they're non-infective. This is the this is still what we believe is that most asymptomatic people don't spread disease. Uh, we're obviously still learning, but uh, but this was a very good lesson that uh, obviously it would have been a different thing if the whole environment around them was contaminated, but, but the good news is it, it wasn't. The other interesting thing that came out of Wuhan during the week was uh, some serological studies, which showed that about 
three and a half percent of the population of Wuhan had antibodies. So to translate that, I'm sure you've already done the maths, Louisa. Wuhan have to go through what they went through 20 more times to get to herd immunity. So to get to, to that 60 or 70%. So, so, so this again also reinforces our, uh, what most of us believe is that the natural herd immunity is not a, not a good pathway. So we're learning a lot still and, and a lot of it's still coming out of China. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so I just wanted to go back to uh, one of the uh, topics that we mentioned just now and was, uh, you know, a confusion versus uh, of, of masks. So um, in Singapore, we had some uh, advisories or, or recommendations from MOH uh, previously that had uh, apparently said that, you know, some of the uh, some populations in the public could actually choose to wear masks uh, or face shields. Um, this doesn't apply to everyone. But now I think the advisory has generally become that everyone should still wear a mask, um, except for children still under the age of 12. And to me, I don't think that there was actually uh, a real big uh, change in the principles of those recommendations, but perhaps I think it was a little bit uh, of a confusion in how it was interpreted. And, you know, the situation where we were in at the time when the first advisory came out was that because, you know, the circuit breaker was still ongoing and we'd expect most people to actually still be at home. There was very little social uh, contact. Um, whereas now it's uh, more towards, you know, after we're lifting the circuit breaker, we're going to see more and more people returning to their posts, uh, going to work. And is that why, you know, there's this perceived uh, change in the recommendations? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think it was a, a change in recommendations. It was, it was more of a tweak. And I think this comes down to a combination of the science, uh, the messaging, and the practicalities of, of things. Mm -hmm. So realistically, I mean, the, the truth is, if, if as we do, we still believe that this is almost entirely spread by droplets, uh, then being two meters away is enough. And, and you shouldn't need to wear a mask if, if you can socially distance. Now, of course, once you start making the message a bit more complicated, then people start to say, well, uh, I was two metres away, but then this person walked past me and started talking to me and I didn't want to be rude and put my mask back on or something like that. So, so it starts to get complicated and that's when you just say, look, forget it, everyone wear a mask. Uh, I, I would love to see if you're walking through a park where, where it's clearly easy to social distance. I'd, I'd like to see that one go. Um, but... While it's still law, I'm certainly not going to tell people to, to to not break the law. And indeed, when I go walking with my dogs, I, I begrudgingly wear a mask. But uh, but uh, the one where I do feel strongly is is public transport. And when you're when you're up up close to people, especially you're indoor, and especially if there's there's sort of large numbers. Now, um, uh, I think the confusion came when it was time to go back to school and wearing masks is is a lot more difficult so i think they gave an instruction which is you can replace your mask with a face shield if you can socially distance now this is obviously very important for for schools because facial expressions of the teachers are important um, being clear when you when you speak is important 
So I can see why that modification was brought about. But this got, uh, I, I think it was added to um, people who have breathing problems can also wear a face shield. Mm -hmm. um, and and this, this got translated to, oh, you don't have to wear a mask, you can wear a face shield. Mm -hmm. So I think there was some, some scrambling after that to really get, uh, get the message back and on point. Um, Singapore has been fabulous at messaging. There's no, uh, there's no two ways about that. But uh, mm -hmm. I think this, uh, in, in trying to make things a little bit more practical, it just shows how easy it is for a bit of confusion mm -hmm. to come back in. But I think it's all clear again now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and there was also something uh, mentioned uh, just now when we were talking about Wuhan and they're giving us quite a lot of uh, good lessons, I suppose, or things to talk about, is uh, when you mentioned that they did the environmental swabs for the asymptomatic individuals that they found. And um, as the circuit breaker is lifting, one thing that we're seeing is that, you know, they're talking about how everyone is now hyper aware that you really have to, other than, you know, clean yourself and your hands, clean the environment and around you. And I've personally also had a lot of friends ask me, how exactly or how often do I need to clean my office? And, you know, how far do I have to clean every nook and cranny? Um, and I have to clean my chair. Do I have to clean, you know, the, the, the kind of um, shelves around me even? I mean, that is if you don't have a professional cleaning company to do it. Um, but I think uh, several people are just wondering about how exactly is, you know, do we perceive the load of virus on our surfaces? And is that really um, such a concern for transmission? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Uh, certainly conventionally, uh, contact precautions go with droplet precautions, right? Mm -hmm. so, so if someone can cough the virus uh, across the room or as you are speaking, uh, give off some droplets, then obviously they can land on surfaces. Now, if that, if that droplet lands on your eye or in your mouth, then that's obviously a pretty big inoculum. But once it gets onto a, a, a surface, then it gets diluted. If that surface then touches your hand and then your hand touches your mouth, actually that droplet has been on two other surfaces before it got to your mouth. So I, I agree with this was, this came out in CDC recently that um, it's again, and it can be misconstrued. Yes, you can get infected from the environment, but it's still, not the major way. So it has to be kept in perspective. I think some people have been worried about money going from person to person to person. Um, and, and therefore, do we have to sterilize money? And, and I would stick with the, the adage, it's best to wash your hands because your hands have touched several things. Um, so it's about keeping it in perspective. Uh, what should you clean? I think it's good to clean I think it's good actually to not touch. So I, I must say when I get into an elevator, I'll push it with my knuckle rather than the end of my finger because it's unlikely my, my knuckle is going to go into my mouth at the end of my finger might. So now that's that's crazy, but uh, just something lots of people find themselves doing, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, washing your hands with soap and water or using alcohol-based hand rub is good. Uh, frequently touched surfaces, so as we say, elevator buttons, door handles, um, things like that. But I also regard my my home as as a clean place. Mm -hmm. So anyone that comes in, I would get them to wash their hands before they come in. So so therefore, uh, it, it shouldn't be 
be brought in that way. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we know it can survive for hours or days, depending on, on the surface, but, uh, but we, just, we just keep that fomite um, transmission uh, as, as real, but, but, but less, less likely than, than someone with symptoms. And so I think that's a very important message that, I mean, for uh, COVID to be transmitted through contact, you know, the, the virus has to be on the surfaces in the first place. So which is still why we advise, you know, like if you're sick, then you don't come to work or you go and see a doctor, right? Or you wear a mask and, you know, you should wash your hands so that that transmission or that, you know, contamination of surfaces doesn't occur a few fold. So that's something that I think that, you know, myself and my friends would good do good to remember too. Um, and uh, speaking about, I suppose, all these things that have an impact on our daily life now, there was one thing that I got a bit excited about, I think a little bit too prematurely, uh, but we heard that Singapore was opening some travel lanes, uh, what we call green lanes, but this is only specific to China for now, it's in planning. Um, and, but I think a lot of people started thinking, oh, are we actually close to be able to take our long-awaited holiday? And I'd love to say yes for myself too, but really, I don't think so at all. I think there's still too many variables um, and there's quite a long way to go before we can really see how travel restrictions um, are to be lifted in a general way. Yeah, the, the devil is in the detail. Um, I, I too got excited and my philosophy will be um, when it's possible to, to go on a holiday, go early before the before the number of cases pick up again uh i'm a firm believer that the second wave is uh is is not far away um but but once you look into for instance the the green lane to china uh again i mentioned this on the on the thursday night show was um was you need to have a sponsor you need to i think you have to stay with that person for at least the first two weeks you need a swab in Singapore within 48 hours of travel. You need one on arrival in China and you have to stay in quarantine until that results back. Um, so it's really uh, not, the, not the freedom you'd like to, to go uh, mm -hmm. wandering around the, the sites of, of Shanghai and then hopping down to Chengdu for some beautiful food. No, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really for the, the businessman who's... Mm -hmm. uh, who really needs to get there and, and spend a month or two, I think, uh, just, just to make it possible. There's also talk with, uh, I think, South Korea, Singapore, Australia and New Zealand are talking about a, a, a hub. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense, but, uh, but I think this is really one to watch. Don't, don't mm. book the tickets yet. Um, if, uh, I, I think... Uh, as I said, I think the approach in Australia and New Zealand is, is pretty fast um, and they could have a completely different epidemiology in a month. Um, if they don't, great, uh, because we all want to, well, I certainly want to get back and visit my mum, but, uh, but uh, you've, uh, this is going to be a changing field and, and because it's changing, I think therefore progress is likely to be a bit slow uh, as Bruce Aylwood said uh, said to me recently, you know, if, if you're going to open travel lanes, I don't think you need all the swabs. I don't think um, you need all this. You, you just need to know what the other country is doing. Mm -hmm. And if the other country has controlled transmission as opposed to 
lots of unlinked cases, if they've got uh, good social restrictions in place, if they've got good contact tracing and testing, then you can have some faith that that country is behaving in a similar way to you. Mm. Um, and that you can't drop, drop the bundle if someone does happen to come from another country and, and have the disease. That doesn't mean you panic. That just means, well, yeah, lucky we were watching them closely and maybe having a phone call with them every day or, or home quarantine for two weeks or whatever, whatever the rule is of, of the day. Mm. Okay. Well, it sounds like anyway, for now, we'll just look forward to when my local park can be opened. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> even, even that'd be an improvement, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so all right, so now I have some, uh, I was wondering whether we can do a little bit different, we're going to do a Mythbusters section or at a session or at least for myself. I've been reading a little bit of, um, I've been reading some news that I'm not really sure whether it's true or false uh, or how much truth it contains, maybe I shall I put it that way. Um, one of them is, um, you know, there's a lot of people saying that um, now they believe that coronavirus is what they call a blood disease. And I think that's in relation to a lot of um, scientific news that we know, or it's still being investigated, that uh, because COVID, um, that there's this thing called um, ACE2 receptors that is present on a lot of our organs in the body, including on our blood vessels too. And that's a way that um, I suppose COVID can, um, you know, uh, the, the pathology of, of COVID um, works, how it works in the body. So I don't know how how it got there to it being a blood disease and, you know, whether that's transmissible by that way and that's why it's so severe in a lot of people. But um, I'm just wondering whether, Prof Dale, you had any kind of insight. So um, this is a classic for um, there being some truth to this, but we don't know everything yet. And, and I think um, some, some things are myths. But, but others are just areas to, to explore. And I think this is the latter. Um, as you say, we know there's, there's receptors widespread, most commonly the lung. That's why it's mainly a lung condition, but we also know it's in the small intestine. So that's why people get diarrhea. Um, and, uh, and we know it's in, in blood vessels as well. But actually the, the virus is usually not in the blood. Uh, it certainly is sometimes, but it's not known as a particularly viremic uh, condition, uh, as you might see in Ebola, for instance. So when this, this vasculitis business may be partly responsible for uh, excess thrombosis. Uh, we know there's hypercoagulability, um, but we're not really sure why, but we know people can form blood clot, well, we we believe people can form excess number of blood clots, both in the arteries and the veins in this condition. Um, there was something on TV about the right ventricle and that was reflecting on the, the strain being put on the heart from small clots in the lung. Um, we know about the children's uh, Kawasaki-like syndrome. Is that something related to this? Um, so this is very interesting very much a, a watch this space. It's clearly not a big thing in terms of percentage of cases, because we know mm -hmm. huge numbers of asymptomatics, huge numbers of mild disease. These are the sort of 
tip of the iceberg, I think, where a few people are going to get some nasty complications, but it, it's a small number. Okay. And um, one last thing that I wanted to ask was, um, there was also some, I suppose, concerning or strange news that I read about, you know, um, some people uh, were talking about whether there are man-made insertions, um, you know, that, that, is, that has resulted um, in basically COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yeah, I, yeah. I think uh, that this doesn't come from scientists. Um, <laughs> you, 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 we know uh, the, the, the theories of uh, viral mutations, uh, species jumps, spillover events. This is very well founded. It happens every couple of years. It happened um, in the last week, again, with another Ebola outbreak in, in DRC. Mm. Um, we know it happened in, in SARS from, from bats to civet cats and, and, and in MERS from, from uh, bats to camels. Uh, so, so we know these events happen. And for it to be a man-made uh, thing when you've got... Let me just say nature is much better at this than people in a lab trying to, to create something. Um, and they'd have to do it very specifically on the, uh, on the spike protein um, uh, area so that that could evolve to be able to attach to the ACE2 receptor. So, so I'm not a virologist, but anyone I've spoken to about this uh, dismisses this one very quickly. It's just very, very, very much less likely this could be done by a person. Mm -hmm. Okay, I suppose that's good to know. All right, so I think we shall uh, conclude our session for today. Thanks again very much, Prof. Dale, for your time and for answering our questions and solving some myths for us. And I uh, hope you will join us again here next week as usual. Thank sure, you. Sure, thanks, guys. Thank you.